you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis 25, we'll be reading verses 1 through 18 in just a moment here. It's on page 22 if you're going to use the Red Pew Bible. Uh, this is kind of a, a sad section in that it records the death of the beloved Abraham. Though chronologically speaking, he would actually live for another 35 years, well into chapter 27, this is the last we hear about him in Genesis. Thus, it is the last chapter, thus, in the last chapter, we, we saw his final words in action. In this here, we see the author's summary of his life. The first verse of our section fills in a startling hole in what we have known so far about Abraham. Verse 1. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. This English rendering is technically correct, but it plays to our presumptions. The nuance of the Hebrew verb comes out a little bit better, I think, in the New International Version, also in the New English Translation, which both read this way. Abraham had taken another wife. This second reading kind of forces us to realize that while the revelation of this wife follows the death of Sarah, the marriage may not have. In fact, it probably did not. As I mentioned, this passage is not presented chronologically, meaning that what is recorded here on paper did not happen here in time. More importantly, verse 6, as we're going to read in a moment, calls this Keturah a concubine. That's a term that's only ever used when the second wife is added to the first. If the first wife has died and is no longer on the scene, the word concubine is never used. That she's called a concubine strongly suggests that she was added alongside of Sarah. The net effect of all of this is to paint a picture of Abraham as a polygamist who's had another wife all along and we are just now learning about it. Does that shake you up a little bit? Are you a little outraged? I know I was the first time I heard about it. Do you find yourself wanting to dig in your heels and make a, an argument for why it can't possibly be that way? Abraham wasn't a polygamist. This is just liberal scholarship trying to tear down our religion. Abraham's the great father of our faith. Keturah must have come after Sarah, not alongside of her. That's how I reacted the first time I encountered this understanding. But we have to ask ourselves, why do we react that way? Why is this news so repugnant to me? In all likelihood, it has to do with my efforts to protect Abraham's reputation. It's funny, isn't it, how desperately we want the redeemed to be good people. How we want the saved to be heroes of morality, paragons of righteousness. And isn't it 
quite stunning how shocked we are when a celebrity pastor falls, often because of sexual sin like that of Abraham. It seems we've forgotten that Jesus himself said in Luke, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Pharisees were very outraged by the company Jesus kept, but they never seemed outraged by Abraham because they had whitewashed him. Let's remember who this man is. This is a man who married his sister, something forbidden by God's law. This is a man who then prostituted that sister-slash-wife in order to save his own neck in Egypt, when his neck was never actually in danger anyway. This is a man who slept with a slave. By definition, slaves cannot control what happens to them. What do we call a sexual relationship where the man has all the power and the woman is a participant whether she wants to be or not? Finding out that Abraham may have had another wife is probably the least offensive thing about this man, sexually speaking. God does not save good people. God saves sinners. If we recoil at the thought of Abraham having a second wife, is it because we believe there are limits upon the gospel's power? I mean, come on, polygamists cannot possibly be saved. If that's the case, why then did Paul feel the need to tell the church that elders must be the husband of one wife? Sure seems to imply that there were men in the church who had more than one wife. I suspect For most of us, any outrage, any resistance to this idea, though we be good Calvinists, really comes from a deep-seated desire, a hope we're harboring deep inside that mankind, at least a few of us, are good enough to contribute to our salvation, are good enough to warrant God's grace. The good news of the gospel, and this matters to us and it matters to the rest of this sermon. The good news of the gospel is not that Jesus saves those who are very near to saving themselves, but that Jesus saves those who are so far from being salvation worthy. Continuing in verse 2. Keturah bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shuah. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Letushim, and Lu... You guys come for me to stumble over these, don't you? Lumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abida, and Eldaha. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, 
but to the sons of his concubines, plural, meaning at least Keturah and one other, probably Hagar, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175. Even among believing scholarship, there is a recognition that the Old Testament uses numbers symbolically very often. So there are some that have wondered if this is a literal number. I don't see any particularly good reasoning in the context to see it as symbolic, and I'm inclined to believe that he actually lived 175 years. Um, and the reason I point that out is to say, remember, this is not chronological. Down in verse 20, if you skip ahead, we're not going to read that far today, but if you skip down to verse 20, you see that Isaac was 40 years old when he got married. He, Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born, so at this point, Abraham's 140 years old, and this says he lived to be 175. So he's got 35 more years, and yet this is now the account of his death. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. He was, as we're going to find out, he was not taken back to Ur to be buried. Rather, he was buried alongside Sarah. So gathered to his people does not mean buried with his ancestors. It's probably a suggestion of the afterlife. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. Verse 12 is going to open with the phrase, these are the generations of, and it's been a while, quite a while now in Genesis since we've seen that phrase, so let me remind you that that Hebrew word, toledot, these are the generations of, is the marker of a new section in the book of Genesis. We mark out particular chapters in different ways. The author wrote that these are the generations of. The, the, the text that has to do with Abraham is now officially closed. He's now going to consider the, the generations of Ishmael. It has been his practice, our author's practice all along, to first consider the, the, the line that does not trace out the covenant uh, uh, line. So Cain's descendants were considered before Seth's. The non-Hebrew peoples in Genesis 10 were considered before the line of Terah in Genesis 11. And here he considers Ishmael before going on next week, as we will see, considering the generations of Isaac. Our sermon will not address anything directly from this text, so let me point out one of its main functions here. It is a reminder, first of all, that God cares for all people, not just the covenant line. He is attentive to the comings and goings of all, man all humanity. Number two, it is a a demonstration of the fulfillment of God's promises. He had promised Abraham that Ishmael would be the father of many peoples also. Number three, when the angel came to Hagar, he gave a specific prophecy to Hagar in the desert that Ishmael would be at odds with all of his brothers, and the final verse of this section will hearken back to that. So let's consider now verses 12 through 18. 
These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, Kedar, uh, Adbeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jatur, Nafish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes, according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all of his kinsmen. This is the word of God. It is the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. And if we want to understand it and apply it correctly, we need his help. Let's go to him now. Spirit of God, our lives weigh heavy on us. Even as we consider the death of Abraham, we are confronting our own mortality. Comfort us through this passage. Encourage us in the midst of it. Let us see the, the, the message of this summary of Abraham's life. And let us see what you have in store for us, your people. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Among the many reflective and insightful observations in his book, Walden, Henry David Thoreau famously wrote, Most men live lives of quiet desperation. Most men live lives of quiet desperation. I don't know if he meant male or men in the sense of humanity, but I suspect that most women also live lives of quiet desperation. For most of us, that quiet desperation grows stronger as we age. As the years of our life ebb and the end becomes closer than the beginning, we often have a looming sense that our grand plans to change the world are probably not going to come to fruition. I was in graduate school working on an advanced degree in chemistry when someone pointed out this observation. The vast majority of Nobel Prize winning chemists have their winning idea before the age of 27. I was 26 at the time. It put a lot of pressure on me. Spoiler alert, I did not go on to win a Nobel Prize in chemistry. I was not destined to change the world through the magic science of chemistry. I did generate a lot of cool compounds with some pretty colors, and I have a lifetime supply of chemical formulas to use as computer passwords. But I did not uh, win a Nobel Prize. As the years of our lives pass, the pile of such unaccomplishments, and I don't really want to call them failures, I'm going to use this word unaccomplishments, the pile of such unaccomplishments grows ever larger. The invention we never patented, the business idea we never pursued, the novel never written. Okay, for some of us, it's the novel never read, but you get the idea, okay? It's, in one sense, these really aren't failures, 
and yet they haunt us nevertheless. Then there are the smaller dreams. Very often it's the smaller dreams that bring larger pain. After all, unwritten novels and unwon Nobel Prizes, well, they were never realistic anyway. It was never really going to happen. And so we can write those off. But we despair as we consider the other dreams of our lives. Why am I still stuck in this job? I'm not speaking for myself. Okay? Just the hypothetical person out there. Why am I still stuck in this job? Why did I never finish that degree? Why didn't I spend more time with my children? Why have I never been able to get closer to my spouse? Those goals seem inherently achievable. And so the realization that we have not and may not ever achieve them hurts all the more. Finally, for most of us, there are the utter outright moral failings. Why was I so abusive towards my daughter? Why did I have that affair? Why did I gamble to excess, drink to excess, work to excess? Why would my pride never let me say, I'm sorry I was wrong? And for those of us who are lifelong churchgoers, we can tack on the added guilt of not praying enough, reading our Bibles enough, or giving enough. Lives of quiet desperation, indeed. And so, we seek connection to others through social media, not an inherently bad thing in and of itself, except that every time we do it, it makes everything ten times worse. The celebrity we follow on Twitter, her life is perfect. The YouTube influencer never has the problems we have. Even the big-time preacher we listen to while we're out walking the dog never seems to be wrestling with our issues. Forget the celebrities. The old classmate we caught up with on Facebook. The sister-in-law we follow on Snapchat. Our co-workers' Instagram all tell tales of flawless lives lived orderly, neatly, perfectly. And so we quietly... Despair. I'm the only one stuck in this mess. Finally, in one of those moments of quiet desperation, we think, well, I should really open my Bible. And that just makes everything worse. Yes, I said opening your Bible makes everything worse. Let me explain. How many of you are still agitated by the revelation that Abraham was a polygamist. Don't raise your hands. I can see the look on your faces. That right there is why turning to your Bible in a time of quiet despair doesn't help. Because you're not turning to the true word of God, but rather our misinterpretation of it. There's nothing wrong with your Bible. There's something wrong with how we typically read it. Now, some of this is not our fault. Hebrew narrative is profoundly subtle, and we Westerners don't always catch that subtlety. Some of that can be forgiven. And some of it has to do with the way we were told and taught these stories, usually sanitized, 
as they're presented to us as children. I get it. It's hard to talk to a group of third graders about all of Abraham's sexual sins. And yet, when we have that false understanding of the scripture, it actually does more harm than good, I think. Most of you, if I gave you a moment or two, you could probably name the three Old Testament figures who are most often referenced in the New Testament by name. Think about that for a moment. Which Old Testament persons are most often referenced by name in the New Testament? They are, in order of frequency, Moses, 78 times, he is named in the New Testament, Abraham, 72 times, David, 54 times. If you guessed Elijah... He was fourth on the list, so you were in the ballpark. Okay? Um, I threw that in there because I guessed Elijah over David. Oops. Um, so, let's take a look at those men. These men of the faith, these profound human figures. Men we've studied in Sunday school, learned about all of our lives. Let's be reminded of who they really were. Rather than David's sons accepting his anointing of Solomon at the end of his life so that he could take the throne, uh, uh, Adoniah, one of David's sons, actually tries to usurp the throne while David's still alive. And one of his ploys to do this is to try to take one of David's concubines. You want to talk about family dysfunction. That would be a cause for despair as King David lay dying, but it it's worse. Years earlier, Absalom ran David out of town and actually took the throne while his father was still alive. We kind of forget about that, don't we? But it gets worse even than that. Earlier, that same Absalom killed his own brother Amnon. Now, why would one of David's sons kill another of David's sons? because Amnon had raped their sister, Tamar. What a mess. And that is to say nothing of all of David's more famous sins, of his conspiracy to commit murder, of his ten wives and concubines, of his affair with Bathsheba, of his, of his, of his. Why do we whitewash the memory of David? We seem to forget what a train wreck of a man he was. What do we remember about him? He was a man after God's own heart. He was the gold standard by which all other kings were going to be measured. He was the royal type of the Christ to come. And all of that's true. But when we divorce those facts from the bigger picture of who David really was, we tend to arrive at some wrong, even anti-gospel conclusions. David wasn't God's exemplary king because he was Mr. Righteous. But because in the final analysis, David always ran back to the gospel message of hope in God's grace. David never concluded, well, 
I've just got to try harder. David never concluded, at this point, Yahweh must be fed up with me. Maybe I'll worship Baal or Asherah. David always hoped in the grace and mercy of God. In his greatest failures, David believed God would still be faithful. When we sanitize the story of David, we miss the grace of God. Grace and mercy have no meaning without offense. David was a man of tremendous offense, and he experienced tremendous grace. Don't make the mistake, Paul addresses in Romans, shall we go on sending that grace may increase? By no means. That's not the point of this message. And yet we do need to recognize what a broken man he was. When we make David to be what the Bible never says he was, a perfect exemplar of human morality, we make his legacy about him rather than about his God. David's legacy is a lasting legacy because it was a gospel legacy. Did David live a life of quiet desperation? Maybe, I don't know. What's infinitely more important is that he lived a life of gospel confidence. In his darkest, most desperate times, he ran to the God against whom he had sinned, not away from that God. David always believed God's grace was greater than his sin. That's David's lasting legacy, not his moral perfection or his family dynamic. And what of Moses? He never did anything wrong, right? I mean, after all, he's the lawgiver. He was quite the lawbreaker also. He married outside the nation of Israel to a Midianite, Zipporah, though she seems to have been a believer in Yahweh. And later, he marries a Cushite without us ever being told whether Zipporah is still on the scene or not. At Cushite, we know nothing about her faith, but we do know that the marriage to the latter stirred a great deal of controversy within the family of Moses. His brother and sister both opposed this wife, and so there was great dysfunction. Imagine Thanksgiving dinner in the Moses household. The lawgiver also failed to teach Israel about circumcision. God's covenant sign, he didn't practice. And so at his death, there was an entire generation of Israelites who had never been circumcised, and Joshua, the faithful lieutenant, had to step up and fix what his boss had left undone for 40 years. Moses didn't even circumcise his own children. His wife Zipporah had to do that. And he was barred from entering the promised land. You want to talk about a life of desperation? Imagine 40 years of pining for the promised land only to be left on the doorstep. I think I forgot to mention he was a murderer also, having killed the Egyptian in his youth. So you know, Moses is not the clean-cut, buttoned-up guy we make him out to be. 
Are you starting to see how our storybook Sunday school versions of these Bible figures resemble our modern social media? We hide all the ugly, pretending it's not there. We show only the good things, thus giving the appearance of perfect people whose falsified persona only make us more depressed as we assess our own lives by comparison. Your Sunday school memory, your too quick reading of Moses and David, doesn't help you when you turn to the Bible, but makes matters worse. But Moses, like David, isn't the story of God helping the man who helped himself. It's not the story of God making the most out of a man who made himself ready for God. Instead, it's the story of a very flawed, sinful man who always ran back to God, believing in God's grace, that God would keep his promises. Trapped at the water's edge, God has said he's taken us to the promised land. Trust him. Snake bit, God has said he will take us to the promised land. Trust him. Down and out in the desert, God has said he will take us to the promised land. Trust him. Through it all, Moses clung to his hope in the grace of God and in the faithfulness of God. Moses always believed the promises of God to his people would be realized. Did Moses know that God's grace and promises would be personified in Jesus of Nazareth, who came at the first Christmas? I don't know. But he believed God would save his people. He believed God would send a perfect and superior prophet. He believed God would one day fulfill the sacrificial system that pointed to the Christ. In the midst of all of his failures, Moses clung to the gospel, and so that became his lasting legacy. All of that brings us back around to our man Abraham. We sanitize him as well and his life. And so we think this near-perfect figure against whom we should uh, uh, measure ourselves is unattainable. But like the others, it's not Abraham we should be in awe of. It's his God. Whatever regrets you might have when reflecting upon your life, we know Abraham had many more. Imagine if Abraham had his life to do over. He'd never have tried to adopt Lot and take him along when he was told to leave him behind. That ended very badly for his nephew. He'd never have tried to adopt Eliezer as an heir, and he surely wouldn't have have impregnated a slave girl. And can you just imagine how differently he'd want to handle that whole affair in Egypt where his wife ended up in Pharaoh's bed instead of his? Have any of you ever done that? Whatever it is you're despairing about in your life, I suspect it doesn't rise to that level, prostituting your own wife. Now, there's a lot more about Abraham's life, and we need to consider it. But if he's reflecting on his life, it's a time of despair, of desperation. But Abraham never quits believing in God's grace and goodness. Abraham never says, well, enough, I've fouled everything up. Maybe Marduk will take me back. In the midst of all his failures, Abraham clings to Yahweh, believing Yahweh saves, believing Yahweh would deliver on his promises. The lasting legacy of Abraham's life is not his goodness, but his God. 
And no matter the quiet desperation of your life right now, you have that same God. Accessible to you. Through the seed of the woman. Through the blessing of Abraham's offspring. The blessing. Capital T, capital B. As the Genesis account of Abraham's life concludes with this summary, don't imagine that Abraham was a paragon of of purity and thus diminish God's grace. See him for what he was, a broken, fallen, sinful man, just hoping that God was all he claimed to be. The first and most important lesson in this text is that in the final analysis, and uh, your and my final analysis may be closer than we realize, in the final analysis, our lasting legacy is not our failures, but our hope in Christ. Our lasting legacy is not your business, for better or worse. It's not your family, functional or not. Not your bank account, full or empty. Your lasting legacy, like that of Abraham, Moses, and David, is the God to whom you are clinging. If you're clinging to your money, that legacy is in trouble. If you're clinging to your good works, that legacy is doomed. The famous lines from C.T. Studd's poem are apt. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. The lasting legacy of Abraham's life was a faith that always turned back to God. Do not despair, but let your hope in Christ be the lasting legacy of your life. Everything else is going to be burnt up anyway. Quick personal testimony to this, not actually in the sermon, but I think of my own grandfather and the impact he's had on me and my brother and my sister. And as we got to be older, it began to creep out some of the things that had gone on in grandpa's life. We began to become aware of some of the difficulties, failures, family dynamics. My grandfather lived a painful, broken life just like everybody else. But his impact on us was his love for the Lord. never went into grandpa's living room, but that the Bible wasn't open on the end table. If I came down early in the morning, he was on the Davenport. He didn't call it a couch. He called it a Davenport. He was on the Davenport reading his Bible. He was constantly talking about Jesus. He was constantly focused on heaven. In the midst of all of his brokenness, my grandfather's lasting legacy was his love for Jesus and the gospel. That's the most important lesson from this text. But I think there is another lesson that we need to learn. And that's the mundane nature of most of our lives. We often forget to put the Bible into a real historical context. And by not noting the time element, we make the mistake of missing all the quiet, mundane days 
which Abraham lived out. Now, let's just forget his pagan years before God called him. Let's just set that aside. Ignore those 75 years. Abraham lived as a Christian for 100 years. Now, the last 35 of which, we've already said, aren't even referenced at all. Then we realize that between chapters 16 and 17, there were 13 years that passed without comment. And between chapters 22 and 23, 24 years passed without comment. And as you begin to piece it together, you realize there are a whole lot of other years that have come and gone in Abraham's life with nothing being said about them. If you're keeping score, that's at least 74 years of his 100-year Christian life about which nothing is said, and the number is probably significantly higher. That's 74 years of Abraham just getting up in the morning and going to work, doing his job, loving his family, paying the bills, fixing the car, mowing the grass, mending the fence, painting the shutters. At least three-quarters of Abraham's Christian life, his life after God called him, were spent just getting through the day. Kind of changes your perspective about the ordinariness of your life, doesn't it? And those mundane, ordinary days of Abraham's life were broken up not by Christian mountaintop experiences. He didn't go to camp or the Reformed Bible Workshop or the Women's Ministries Weekend Retreat. He would not have gone to that, but he didn't sincere to it. He has a couple of high points that are told to us. The defeat of the five kings back in Genesis 13, 14, 14. And, of course, seeing him witnessing the substitutionary salvation of Isaac literally on the mountaintop. But the majority of what we know about his life is pain, difficulty, failure, sin, heartbreak, dysfunction. Abraham's life was actually defined by the times in the valley. The times when he was down. Years and years of the ordinary and the mundane would pass. And then something terrible would happen. Our lives are defined that way. Because it's in those moments that we either trust God or do not. It's in the times of difficulty, of sin, of temptation, of darkness, that we either cling to the God of Abraham or do not. Our lives of mundane, ordinary tasks are broken up by pain and difficulty. Because in the moments of pain and difficulty, the question becomes, what are you leaning on? What are you hoping in? What are you looking forward to? What's going to get you through it? You know, we make the mistake of hiding from God when things go badly. Getting a divorce, well, that's a reason to change church or just at least leave the church. As if you don't need the church even more in the midst of that pain and difficulty. 
have a knockdown, drag out, blow up with one of the elders, go look for some place where they won't know about that. But when we run from God and his church in the times of difficulty, we never get to see the fruit of forgiveness and of grace. And we begin to doubt it. We begin to think it can't happen. We we begin to think the gospel is powerless. It's in those dark and difficult times that our faith is actually built up. It's in the aftermath of our failures that the gospel is most dear to us if we would just run back to Jesus. Recently, I had a a public failure in front of quite a few unbelievers. Nothing on the scale of Abraham's, Moses's, or David's well-documented failures, but still, it was shameful. You know what I did? I hid the fact that I was a pastor. I kept quiet about being a Christian. Why? Well, I could say it was to avoid the accusation of being a hypocrite, but in truth, it's probably got more to do with the fact that I don't fully lean on the good news of the gospel. Imagine instead of going silent about my faith, I had done just the opposite. There would have been accusations and questions. How can you act like that and be a Christian and a pastor, no less? But what an opportunity to say, well, let me tell you about my God of grace. Let me tell you about the God who loves me despite the fact that I act like that. Let me tell you about the God who came at Christmas and then died for me because I act like that. Jesus came to save sinners like me. What a beautiful evangelistic opportunity I might have had if I wasn't ashamed of the gospel. The lasting legacy of Abraham's life is not perfection, but hope. It's not emotional highs, but clinging to God in the midst of the lows. It's in a life lived in quiet, ordinary days, which passed without notice, interrupted only by difficulty, stress, and hardship. But in the quiet days and the hard ones, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, that's a lasting legacy. But that's a legacy available to you and to me, if we will cling to Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is an amazing thing that you would send your perfect son to redeem people like Abraham, people like me. As we consider again this morning, as we have considered again this morning, the great grace that you extend in Jesus Christ, Let us be profoundly moved, renewed in hope, renewed in a gospel zeal 
clinging to Jesus and to him alone, hoping in him and him alone, knowing that you take our darkest, most difficult times and make them about your grace. We pray this in his name. Amen.